hey, it's Ian Altman. Do you want to connect with other people just like you looking to take your expertise and your sales to the next level? Then check out the Same Side Selling Academy. It's all integrity-based. We've got instructional videos. It's a private community in Facebook, so you can share ideas and collaborate with other people. Twice a month, I'll do a Facebook Live addressing specific questions so you can hear the actual language that I believe will help you drive success. And then we'll have extraordinary guests on on a regular basis as well to add additional value. The charter and founding members get a deal and a half, really just appreciating you for asking the questions, suggesting that I offer this stuff, and almost apologetically because it took me so darn long to launch it. So we hope to see you there at the Same Side Selling Academy. Just visit samesidesellingacademy.com or ianaltman.com and you'll see it all there. If you're a fan of innovation, you're going to love this episode. This is Ian Altman. Thanks so much for tuning in. And I especially want to thank those of you who take the time to drop notes to me and post reviews on iTunes and Stitcher and share the episodes with your friends. Really makes a big difference. This week's guest is Stephen Shapiro. Now, Stephen is the definition of innovation. And for over 20 years, he's presented his strategies on innovation to audiences in 50 countries. He was with Accenture for 15 years, where he led a 20,000-person innovation practice. He's written five books, including Best Practices Are Stupid, and that happened to be named the best innovation book of 2011. He's got a system... It's kind of a game called Personality Poker that we'll talk about that's been used around the world to create high-performing innovation teams. And in 2015, he was inducted into the Speaker Hall of Fame, something that very few people have been recognized for. We're going to talk about the biggest mistakes that organizations make with innovation, the best practices traps, and how to really discover true innovation in your business and what it means. You're going to learn a ton. It's really a blast. Here's my interview with Steve Shapiro. Steven Shapiro, welcome to the program. Oh, it's great to be here, Ian. I write from time to time about innovation, and it's probably a debacle and a travesty that I do so because though I often cover this topic, this is something that you are an expert in. You are a well-respected speaker and thought leader on the subject. And before we get into what people should be doing, what are some of the biggest mistakes you see organizations make when it comes to innovation? I think the the biggest mistake is confusing creativity with innovation, confusing ideas with problems. Because uh, what ends up happening is if you look at most innovation programs, they're really just suggestion boxes. And, and we ask anybody and everybody for their opinions, ideas, and suggestions, and we get thousands of them, and two of them are of value. And so we, we, we create a lot of wasted energy in the process. Uh, and from my perspective, that just that doesn't work. We waste so much energy when we ask people for their opinions and ideas. We see this happen pretty often, which is organizations say, look, we need to develop a center of innovation inside of our business. What usually sparks that initial interest in creating that center of innovation? 
Well, innovation, unfortunately, is such a confusing word for a lot of people. I would say that most companies decide to do something like this when either they're feeling they're being commoditized uh, and that they're an industry where there's very little differentiation between the companies in the industry, or they feel they, they're being disrupted and that there's something happening technologically or at some other level that could make them irrelevant in the future. Uh, or the last one is typically when they're uh, their revenues uh, and profits are flat or maybe going in the wrong direction, and they see the need to inject some life into things. So those are usually the three big reasons people will want to move forward with some type of innovation program. And Stephen, you made the point that sometimes people confuse innovation and creativity. What do you mean by that? Well, there's always been this belief that you want to think outside the box. I mean, that's that is when we say innovation, a lot of people use it as the shorthand. But the reality is, this concept of thinking outside the box has no relevance at all to innovation. Uh, in fact, my perspective is, you don't want to think outside the box. You want to find a better box. And if the the reason that innovation tends to fail is because we are at some level asking very big, broad, abstract questions like, how do I improve revenues? How do I increase margins? How do I improve productivity? And what happens in the process of doing that is we invite literally hundreds, if not thousands of irrelevant, low value types of ideas. Uh, so what I work with clients on is how do we get better at asking better questions, more important questions. Because when we ask questions that are framed properly, we reduce the noise. Uh, and sometimes the issue is not so much, again, about expanding your thinking. It's just if I'm looking to the left, maybe I should be looking to the right. And that's the reason why we're not innovating is because one of my other beliefs is that expertise is the enemy of innovation. Our past success often and ultimately leads to our future failure. So we need to recognize that we have blind spots when it comes to our organization's ability to grow. I love that. Expertise is the enemy of innovation. So you mentioned that people have these big, audacious questions, these very broad questions. What are the traps and the types of responses they get when they give those sorts of questions to the people they're trying to get input from? Well, I remember my first experience with this was about 20 years ago when innovation was sort of in its infancy. I've been involved in it for a long time. And it was a bank that decided to run one of these suggestion box programs. And they got thousands of ideas from their employees, ranging from new products they could create to different ways that they could serve their customers. Uh, and at the end of the day, they uh, implemented two. And what happened was all of the people who took the time energy to put in their suggestions and they didn't do anything with it felt sort of disenfranchised. Morale actually dropped significantly. And there was a point where nobody wanted to contribute because they didn't see any value coming from it. And the entire innovation program was killed and everybody associated with it was fired. And the reason is because most of the ideas that go into suggestion boxes are either uh, low-hanging fruit. They're the things we've been thinking about for a long time, but just haven't done anything with it. Or it's a personal issue. I see it's a value to me uh, and my small part of the world within the company, but it might not have enough value overall for the organization. So one of my other beliefs is that you can't be the best at everything. You can't solve every problem. Not all, all ideas are great. At the end of the day, you want to innovate where you differentiate. And you need to get very clear about what it is that helps you stand out in the market. And then you ask questions of 
your employees, of your customers, of the market to help you find better solutions to the most important differentiating questions. My guess is that for some organizations, what they think is, look, so the first place we want to go is we want to talk about best practices. And coincidentally, you wrote a best-selling book that was wildly popular called Why Best Practices Are Stupid. So what's the trap that people fall into when it comes to best practices? There are three traps. Trap number one is sort of the obvious one. Uh, replication isn't innovation. So if you're basically just copying, especially people in your industry, if you're copying what people in your industry are doing, you're playing a game of catch-up. By the time you implement a best practice, they're on to the next practice. So it is a, it's like a, a, a hamster on a wheel just trying to go faster and faster and not going anywhere. The other two are, are more insidious, though, in my opinion. Uh, the, the second one is that what works for one company may not work for your company. A lot of it has to do with cultural norms and behavior. So 3M's 15% rule, where basically they say any person has 15% of their time to work on whatever they want to work on. I mean, that's a nice concept. It works great for 3M because they have the cultural norms and the deep understanding of it. Any other company that I've seen that tries that typically wastes 15% of their time because culturally it doesn't fit in with the way the company's structured. Uh, and then the last one is just, it's, it's called the undersampling of failure. We look at a best practice. Well, the best practice worked for one company, but we don't know the hundreds or thousands of companies that implemented the same practice and failed. We tend to look for the successes, but all those failures, we tend to undersample them. We don't see them. We don't study them. And therefore, we don't really even know what is the cause of success. There might be a correlation or even just a coincidence. I love that you use that example, Stephen. I work with a lot of organizations on how to avoid wasting time pursuing bad opportunities. And I'll often ask executives, so when you're responding to an RFP, what percentage of the time when you get there late in the game do you actually win those opportunities? And they usually give a knee-jerk reaction, which is less than 10%. And when we really look at it objectively, it's usually less than 5%. And it might be as low in some organizations as one out of 100. Then what I do is I say, well, how about for the opportunities when you get there early? And they say, oh, the number is much higher. And then I say, okay, so are you okay not pursuing these other opportunities? And invariably, someone says, yeah, but we won this one opportunity. And what they fail to see is what it cost them to pursue the other 95 to 99 opportunities that they didn't get. And I think that's something that people really struggle with. Do you, have, do you have some thoughts on that? I think that is a spot on perfect example. And I think it also ties back to what I said before in terms of innovation is that uh, not all ideas are good ideas. You know, not all opinions are good opinions. You know, in, in Dirty Harry, uh, you know, he said that uh, opinions are like uh, butts. I'll use a, a cleaner word. But, <laughs> you know, everybody's got one. And I add to it, you know, but most of them stink. I mean, so look, just because we have a suggestion box with thousands of ideas and we got a couple of good ideas doesn't mean we should pursue that. I mean, my Starbucks idea has 400,000 ideas in there and they implemented 800. And you can say, well, okay, that's 800 new innovations. But I say that's 399,200 people who took time out of their busy day to say, I want a spinach flavored latte and you didn't do anything with it. 
I'm no longer your fan. So I think it's a, you know, the focus is so key. So the idea of this spinach latte reminds me of in, in uh, years ago, I spent time as president of a country club and, and I actually did it twice. So the first time people know you're crazy. And the second time you got to be stupid to do this. And people would come in with all sorts of comments, suggestions and requests that really only serve them. So it would be something as crazy as, well, I don't like the way the crab cake is made, but there's a place where I grew up and they made it this way. So I think that's the way they should make it from now on. And it's like, you know, if someone had peanut butter and a crab cake, suddenly they think that's the way it should be made for everybody. And they start thinking about just their own personal opinion rather than what's in the long-term best interest for everybody. And so I used to always ask people anytime they made a suggestion, well, how is that in the best interest of everybody? And I would always get these responses where it was just such an incredulous response where they said, well, what are you talking about in the best interest of everybody? I mean, me and my three buddies, we think it should be like this. And I think that the problem is that sometimes when we open things up to just wide suggestion box type opportunities, we never know what we're going to get. Well, and, and what's really fascinating to build on that is uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of crowdsourcing when it's done right. And crowdsourcing is basically just when you ask a crowd to solve a problem or give you input on something. And the, the problem, though, is we tend to ask these big abstract questions, which invite a lot of noise in the system. And then we, we could and some people have asked people to vote. Uh, and a c- couple of examples I just find comical more than anything else, but they're so representative of what happens in the real world is when Arnold Schwarzenegger was the governor of California, he ran a crowdsourcing campaign to identify uh, possible solutions to the economic woes of the state. And people were allowed to vote on what they thought would be the best solution. And the number one, number two, number three, and number four most popular uh, suggestions were legalized marijuana. And and then the next one was legalize and tax prostitution. And then the next one was kick prisoners out of jail. So it's, it's you know, we, we get this thing. And, and so in the world of crowdsourcing, we end up with something which I call mob sourcing. And mob sourcing is basically where the vocal few, their personal interests, they're so passionate about them that they're able to rally the small number of people who basically speak louder than the masses. And there's just so much evidence and science and all this behind it. But it's, it's just a fascinating thing to watch human behavior when it comes to this. I appreciate you sharing a lot of the traps that organizations fall into. Let's say that we've got somebody who says, you know what, man, we've been feeling like we've been commoditized and we feel like we're being disrupted, but would like to almost be the disruptor or at least make ourselves disruption proof. And maybe we've been a little bit flat in our organization. So what are the things that organizations should be doing if they want to tap into innovation to help overcome those challenges? Well, I think the first step is always to figure out what your differentiator is. And when I go into companies and work with executive teams, one of the things we find is that there is a lack of clarity around why people do business with you today and why they will continue to do business with you in the future. I mean, they might have missions and visions and platitudes and here's our six pillars or whatever it is, but they aren't expressed in a way that allows you to actually choose what areas of the business are most important. Because the first step to me is to ask important questions. And the way you do that is by innovating where you differentiate. Uh, And I don't think you have to be disrupted 
or disruptive, I should say, but you have to make sure you aren't disrupted. You need to make sure you're disruption proof. Uh, I'm not looking for everybody to uh, come up with something that's going to totally radically change the game. That's tough for big companies, but we need to be aware of what's on the horizon. So that's to me the very first step. And then when we understand that, then we figure out what are the issue, problem, challenges, or opportunities that if we solve them would move the needle on our differentiation and we take the time to reframe them. So Einstein reputedly said, if I had an hour to save the world, I would spend 59 minutes defining the problem, one minute finding solutions. And I find that most companies are running around spending 60 minutes on problems that don't matter. So to me, when I look at innovation, it's that that upfront part of asking better framed, more important problems, that is the, the, the key to unleashing value inside of organizations. Stephen, I want to make sure that our audience gets this dead on. Can you share a story or an example of an organization that followed these steps to embrace innovation and get results? Well, I mean, I, this is one of my favorite examples. Uh, one of the airports here in the U.S., uh, Ian, you travel a lot. We we were you know we we've lamented about the travel woes, and these days uh, you know the the carry on requirements are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. They got that little you know little cage in front of the gate, and if your bag doesn't fit in there, you have to check it. So you get off a long. Yeah, I believe now they've changed the requirements so that you can basically carry one Altoids tin, but not two in the overhead bin. Ah, uh, yes, and uh, it it and, and soon it's, it's questionable whether we'll be able to wear clothing. I mean, I think it's it's uh, a <laughs> exactly. there's going to be a clothing optional airline that's going to have an accelerated boarding process, and uh, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it involves Wesson oil and a shoehorn. <laughs> so, but this one airport, you know, everybody. Now that you're checking more and more bags, the baggage claim process is getting slower and slower. So people were complaining about the length that it took. And so the airport went off and they decided to study how long it takes you know, for the bags to get to the baggage claim. And what they found was that on, on average, from the time that the plane pulled up uh, and the cargo doors opened, it took about 15 to 20 minutes for the bags to get from the plane to the baggage carousel. So they started to work on the problem of speeding up the bags. That was the biggest complaint. That seemed to be the pain point. So let's speed them up. And they spent a ton of money on faster conveyor belts, more baggage handlers, newer technology. And they got it from 15 minutes, 15 to 20 minutes down to eight to 10 minutes. Now, you know, most people who are listening, if they improved the speed that much, if they cut it in half, they would probably think that is phenomenal. People are going to be excited. So they asked the passengers, what's your biggest complaint? What do you think they heard? Baggage claim was still their biggest complaint. Waiting for bags. Waiting for bags. Exactly. So they realized that you, you know, if they spent that much money to get to eight minutes, to get it to seven, six or five would be prohibitively expensive. So they then had what I like to call an epiphany. They realized that it took the bags, on average, 15 to 20 minutes to get from the plane to the baggage carousel. But it only took the passengers at this airport one to three minutes to get from the plane to the baggage carousel. So instead of speeding up the bags, what do you think they did, Ian? Instead, they slowed down the passenger arrival. They slowed down the passengers, absolutely. So they literally reconfigured the airport so that it would take the passengers, on average, eight to 10 minutes to get from the uh, plane to the baggage carousel. Their bags would be waiting for them. Great upsell opportunity also because there are some stores mixed into the, the new walking time. And when they asked passengers, are you happy? They were ecstatic. And, and here's the thing which I find is that you know, we, we 
solve problems. We're working on things that we think are important, yet we don't take the time to actually ask, is it the right question? And we confuse, or they confuse in this situation, the speed of the bags with wait time. They sound the same, but they aren't because wait time is made up of the speed of the bags and the speed of the passengers. And, and here's what I always say to people. If you spend your life trying to speed up bags, you will never think to slow down passengers. So this is why you don't need to think outside the box. You just need a better box. You you ask the wrong question at a conscious or subconscious level. Changing the question changes the range of solutions and in many cases speeds up the solution finding process. That, that reminds me, have you read Ryan Levesque's book, Ask? I haven't, but it sounds like a good one to read. So Ryan talks about if you ask the wrong question, you're not going to get the right information. So he talks about something called the single most important question. And oftentimes, oftentimes what we learn is that if you ask the if you ask the right question, it's not the most frequently answered question or the most frequent answer that carries the most weight, but instead the one with the greatest detail. So Ryan shares a story in his book, and this is a guy who studied neuroscience at Brown, and it's a brilliant, brilliantly written, uh, written book, and Ryan's a great speaker also. He talks about this idea of looking for the highly detailed answer rather than the generic one. So they were in the business of orchid care, meaning literally like you, you got an orchid as a gift. How do you care for it? And the single biggest response people got in terms of where they wanted help was I need help with watering. And they launched a program to answer people's questions about watering and zero people signed up for it. <laughs> but the people that really were interested and were willing to spend money were the people who said, man, I've got, had this orchid for a long time, but every time I go to transplant one, it dies. And I'm really frustrated by this. And I've tried everything else. And the people would give these long, verbose answers. And those are the ones that were actually the best opportunities. Well, and it's like, this is, I go to, I live in Orlando and I go to Disney World as often as I can with my iPad. And I write articles while I'm at Disney because I figure it's better than going to a Starbucks or somewhere else. Uh, and the thing which I always marvel at is one of the things that Disney does a brilliant job at as managing people's wait time. I mean, okay, sometimes you have a long wait, but there's even time, but there, sometimes they are able to create experiences before the experience, like the Tower of Terror. Yes, you're waiting in line, but it's a really cool experience. And then before you get to even get into the second line, you go through into this room where the lights go dark and a TV comes on and you got a little Twilight Zone thing going on. They change the wait experience so that it doesn't feel as arduous. People don't like waiting and so they do a masterful job at that. So there's so much that we can learn, which actually leads to sort of the next step in the process, which is if expertise is the enemy of innovation, how do we learn from people outside of our industry rather than inside of our industry? How do we ask who else has solved a similar problem? And we need to, again, it comes back to the reframing, but if we reframe the question, we will look to places that we've never thought to look for before, and we know that best Breakthrough solutions always come from outside of our industry. I imagine when you're working with people outside of the organization, this gets magnified even more. And where I'm going is there has to be this conflict or this struggle to match the right personalities and the right attributes and candidly, the right blind spots together for 
to get that operational efficiency and that innovation. So what are some of the things that people can do? Well, I think it's fundamentally critical, and it's part of the reason why when I was at Accenture back in the mid-90s, I was leading this 20,000-person innovation practice, and I used to think that some people were innovative and then there was everyone else. And I discovered that everybody is innovative. We just contribute in different ways, and in fact, we need to have a deep appreciation for what each person brings to the innovation process and use them in the right way, and that's something which we tend not to do. So given that, and given the fact that opposites don't attract, they actually detract, if you look at the people you tend to put into your circle, they are almost always people who are similar to you rather than different. So opposites may have an you know, I might be fascinated with somebody who's different, but I don't bring them into my inner circle in most cases. So given those two things, opposites don't attract and everybody's innovative just in different ways, I created something called personality poker, which is, it's a deck of poker cards that very quickly helps individuals understand how do they contribute to innovation? What is the step of the innovation process where they can have the greatest impact and equally important, what is their blind spot who are the people that will complement their hand, complement with an E? Uh, who are the people that they need to partner with that given opposites detract, they probably aren't connecting with because they sort of find, I always say the person you like the least is the person you need the most. The person who's fundamentally different than you, you'll find annoying, but most likely what you find annoying about that person is what you need in that person for you to be successful. Specifically, how important is it to get an understanding of what people are especially good at and maybe what they're not so good at if they're working in a team environment around innovation. Sure. And, and this is actually in itself an interesting innovation thought process. So, you know, 20 years ago, I developed this spreadsheet, which was designed to help me determine which step of the innovation process an individual would be able to contribute to the most. And it was basically four columns, 10 rows, and you basically sorted words within them. And, you know, in a matter of minutes, three, four, five minutes, you could get a pretty good sense of uh, what your your innovation personality was. But it was boring as hell. And to try to use it in a speech was just, oh my God, it was like soul sucking three and a half minutes of people filling out a survey. And I was in Vegas. I was playing blackjack actually at the Venetian. And I all of a sudden realized, well, there's four suits in a deck of cards. There's four steps in the innovation process, which tie back to four styles. And so I went back, took the words from my uh, spreadsheet, and I wrote them on a deck of cards. And I then started partnering with some scientists and psychometric experts. And basically what we ended up with is a deck of poker cards with suits, colors, and numbers on them. And each card has a word that is linked to a behavioral attribute, like being analytical or creative or organized or empathetic. And you go through a process of trading cards with other people with the goal being to get five cards where the words best describe how you see yourself. And based on the suits, the colors, and the numbers that you end up with in your hand will tell you everything about how you contribute to innovation, how you detract from innovation, who you should partner with. And the general premise is that you as an individual want to play to your strong suit. And as a team and as an organization, you need to make sure you're playing with a full deck. And most of the time, we aren't. And that's the general idea. And we also use it, interestingly, to assess the personality of the organization, which is, we say culture, but it's basically your personality. And we use the cards to identify what are the behavioral attributes that are 
encouraged, promoted. You know, if you look at a performance review, are most of them all about hitting numbers or are there uh, attributes that are evaluated in performance reviews on developing new concepts, developing breakthroughs, taking time away from production? And so it's just a fun game where people in a matter of minutes learn a lot about themselves. They leave with their cards. People gift each other cards, which is also a lot of fun because then you get to see how other people see you. I absolutely love this approach of personality poker. We developed a game called Same Side Improv that we use for building skills and expertise in sales scenarios. And I can see why personality poker is so wildly successful. Um, the ability to gamify this and make it so that it's enjoyable for people to discover the right team is just absolutely brilliant, and uh, and I applaud you for it. So, Stephen, if there's one thing you would tell people to do, look, if you want to embrace innovation in your organization, here's what you should do. What would that be? I think the advice I will give came from a fortune cookie that I once got. Wait, wait. Let me write this down in that case if it came from a fortune cookie. It, it, it was – I mean, I saved it because when I read this, is like that – is my entire innovation philosophy in a cookie. Uh, and it basically said, you always have the right answers. They're just sometimes answering the wrong questions. And I think that's really the, the ultimate challenge that organizations face is, you know, it's, it's not just about asking better questions, which I think is an important thing. I think in many cases, we're just asking questions that are past-based questions. And our past success ultimately will lead to uh, failure in the future if we do not do something to disrupt our thought process. And innovation is not about a small team of people in a company. It is about engaging everybody inside the organization, but it's not having everybody innovate everywhere. It's about innovating where you differentiate. And it's recognizing that if you only innovate inside the four walls of your company, you are doomed because everybody inside the organization is indoctrinated into the same mindset. And so we need to get very smart about how we partner externally, gather insights externally to help navigate the ship. So it's all about asking better, more important, more strategic, long-term questions. The answers will find themselves. Absolutely brilliant. Fortune cookie leadership right from the <laughs> mouth of Stephen Shapiro. Of course, we're going to include all the details in the show notes. Stephen, what's the best way for people to get a hold of you to find Personality Poker and to learn more about you and connect with you online? So Personality Poker, you go to personalitypoker.com. Uh, I would also encourage people if they're interested in sort of getting a little taste of Personality Poker. I have a, a free game called personalitypokergame.com, which looks like a Las Vegas slot machine with spinning wheels and you hold the cards that are most like you and it's just really fast and fun and it doesn't replace the cards, but it sort of simulates the experience and that people tell me it's surprisingly accurate. Uh, and if people want to reach me, just go to steveshapiro.com and, and you'll find me there and you can find all my other products and other things that I do. Steven, thanks so much for joining me. I learned a ton. I'm sure our listeners did too and look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks, Ian. I had a blast. Man, oh man. Stephen is just a wealth of knowledge when it comes to innovation. Let me give you a quick 30-second recap of the key information I think you can apply to your business right away. First, don't confuse creativity with innovation. Suggestion boxes are often a waste of time. 
Speaking of which, thinking outside of the box has no relevance whatsoever to innovation at all, and expertise is the enemy of innovation. Use a tool like personality poker to figure out your greatest impact and identify your blind spots. And remember, when it comes to innovation, you always have the right answers. You just have to make sure to ask the right questions. Remember, this show gets its direction from you, the listener. If there's a guest you think I should have on the program, if there's a topic you'd like me to cover, just drop me a note at ian at ianaltman.com. And please be sure to tweet out to Stephen Shapiro at Stephen Shapiro, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S-H-I-P-I-R-O, and let him know how much you appreciate him. Have an amazing week, add value, and grow revenue in a way everybody can embrace, even your client.